one thing that a lot of people don't know is that property management companies are some of the easiest to lend to. I didn't realize that. The reason for that, surprisingly, is property management companies, it's not reliant on one client. It's not like an accounting firm where 80% of your business comes from 20% of the clients. No, everybody contributes in some way. There are use cases where that's not the case, but most times you have so many clients and if 20% drop, it's not going to kill the needle and that's protecting the downside for management. Hello, I'm Steve Class with the business breakthrough you've been waiting for. We're here taking service businesses to a million dollars and beyond. Let's see what kind of impact the next 30 minutes will have on your life and your business. What is going on, Success with Class listeners? Uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode here. This episode is, is packed with some really great insights. It's a gentleman by the name of Patrick Sweck. He owns a company called Stays You Like. It's a short-term management company, Airbnb, think of it that way. Um, this kid is a dynamo. And I don't mean kid in a disparaging way. He's 27 years old. And within a year or two, he grew his company from zero to like two and a half million dollars a year. Incredible growth. And he did that through acquisitions. He was buying up other property management businesses. And that's how he grew so, so rapidly. And we speak about how he did that through creative financing options because he didn't really have the capital uh, necessarily to make that first upfront purchase um, and how he kind of scaled out from there and built out the systems in place to really deliver world-class service and a guest thing there. Um, we also speak about on how to evaluate a deal, like what we're looking for as far as cash flow to make that great offer, what the evaluations are. We get really tactical really quickly. Uh, we also speak about Patrick's past, about how he always was an entrepreneur and how he started when he was 14, like doing computer server work. Really interesting stuff. I think you guys are going to really dig this episode. Um, and more news, my book is still officially out. You can see it right behind me if you're watching the video. It's called Service Business Mastery. We get into uh, really, really deep, high-level operations on how to structure your business, how to scale it, how to potentially exit it, how to build out the team around you. If you're interested in picking up a copy, just go to Amazon, type in Service Business Mastery. It's 99 cents. I wanted to give it away free, but I couldn't. For $1, you get the ebook. And it'll be packed with all the information you'll possibly need to get your business up and running. But I really appreciate the support. And as always, please like this video, subscribe to it, leave me a review on Apple. The algorithms take effect. And it really helps me out. I would really appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into the episode and let's listen to what Mr. Patrick has to say about property management. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, welcome back to another episode of Service Business Success with Class. This is your host, Steve Class. I am joined today by Patrick Switek. Unlike other guests that I've had the pleasure of interviewing before, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Patrick in person yet. And I actually didn't really know about him. I found him serendipitously just through his amazing social media presence, particularly on Instagram. And I was instantly captured by his outgoing personality, his command of the industry, uh, that industry being short-term uh, rental management, Airbnb, think VRBO, that, that type of industry. And I was like, I got to connect this guy because he's doing marketing and he's doing property management the right way. Um, and on a whim, I just sent him a DM, what's going on? And uh, here we are, folks. <laughs> so Patrick, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me, man. Dang, that is a, I almost blushed, man. I was like, damn, this guy's going all out on the, on the hype man <laughs> stuff. You're really good at that. I don't know if that's uh, a, a skill you can use in the workforce or 
Yeah, to listen, world, hire me. Fun. I'll just follow you around with like a banner and a, and a big <laughs> amplifier, and I'll just right. call your name every time you walk into a room. Good sell tactic. I, I need you. I need the class. Yeah, anytime, man. Anytime. So again, thank you so much for coming on. You know, I um, we're in very similar industries. I were before I sold mine. I was in property management sector, uh, and in particular, looks like you're crushing on the Airbnb side. So I know that this wasn't your your first venture. So I'm always curious to kind of peel back the onion and learn a little bit more about the uh, the man behind the entrepreneurship dream here. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Patrick. When were you always a natural born entrepreneur, like you know, kind of door knocking, selling lemonade, or is this something that happens just through intrinsic process? Walk me through like your early, you know, adolescence first job. Yeah, I wish I could tell you like, oh man, you got to study business in college and you'll be an entrepreneur. I promise you. I wish I had this like crazy like, oh yeah, I'm natural, ta you know. Uh, but look, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, it just happened naturally. Um, I always found problems and I was always felt the urge to solve them. From a young age, um, even at the age of, like you said, 10, maybe earlier, I was selling lemonade. That was definitely a thing. Uh, money, any money I can make or problem I can solve, uh, I was doing it. And, um, I mean, I did snow plowing at 12, uh, 14 years old is when I started my first real business. Uh, I provided server space to people worldwide, uh, for gaming and, um, made around $40,000 a year as a 14 year old. That's awesome. And, man. uh, no, got into, I mean, I hate to interrupt, but how old are you right now? Uh, I'm 27. I just turned 27. So right, you, you have a you have a, a, a euphoric face. So I, I you look like a very young man. So that's impressive. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah. The first yeah. The first time I ever my first video game memory was probably uh, uh Nintendo sixty four. So I'm not sure oh, what game I you were good doing that. at the time, but yeah, I think I think I know your age just by you saying that. Um, I was definitely in the Game Boy GameCube era slash eventually the Wii. Uh, so that was like my thing, and I didn't play PlayStation. Um, so I played PC games and. I was different like that. And because of that, I met friends that were also nerds like me that wanted to uh, keep playing games. And I provided server space, ser uh, server space for them. And that's how it blew up. Um, and, you know, I think naturally what, what's really interesting is there was always this push and pull for me, Steve, that, you know, people wanted me to go down this path of success, which... I didn't know what it was and I didn't know how to define it. I thought solving real world problems was success, but clearly um, people showed me that, Hey, you're, you don't have good grades um, and you built this cool startup, but we're not accepting you to any of the colleges. I got rejected from every single college I applied to other than uh, the community college that was local. So that's where I went. <laughs> so uh, I went to community college and I decided to go the path that they told me to go. And so I went to community college. I got great grades. I got the 4.0. I got into a top 10 business school, got a 4.0 there, started a bunch of different things. Um, but it was always interesting because entrepreneurship was like the lady in the red dress. It was always something that distracted me. And I felt like it was a distraction from the real goal of success, which everyone told me was, you know, getting a good job, getting good grades, that, that whole thing. The rich dad, poor dad kind of philosophy of the uh, the poor dad, so to speak, the education. Uh, yes, exactly. And so 
100% felt that pull in my life and I kept going back on the track, right? So every time I would build something, um, you know, like venture, I was in venture capital. I, I raised venture capital uh, when I was in college and I built this high tech startup doing uh, virtual menus and um, had a team of five to 10 people. And so I did that while maintaining a social life while getting 4.0. So, I mean, it was hard. But at the same time, I realized that my love and passion was definitely an entrepreneurship. Didn't really work out. Actually moved out to LA to work at a real job, real job. So, and I always um, found it funny that, 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 and you're not alone in this, where a lot of entrepreneurs will have success. Even, I mean, you're incredibly young to have that success when you're 14 making these servers. And they still, that's how strong societal pressure is of the go to school mythology that you ignore the success of the business because that's not the tried and true path that society deems or your parents want you to do. And you stick with like, I just need to get a, a, my own nine to five job still. I, so that's not, that, not alone, but that's crazy. Steve, isn't that weird how like internally you feel like what this is truly what makes me happy, but, but externally the social pressures logically make you question those emotions and like makes you justify why you're going the path that you're going. It's kind of weird, right? And I don't know what that, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, um, but there, it feels like a push and pull. Like, I don't know, like, you know, it, it's, you it ever comes to the, this, this weird, it stems from when we were, my opinion, when we were kids, the successful people around your stratosphere usually were the doctors, the lawyers, and like, you need to have a credit degree to reach that status symbol. And if you said to someone, well, yeah, my son is a doctor, their, their eyes light up like, oh, wow, that's really, really, you, you, they made it, so to speak. That's the success. And that permeates the air, it seems, and it really cascades down to the, to the child. Or if you're not an entrepreneur, so to speak, because your core circle of the people you have around you aren't typically entrepreneurs, they don't understand it. And when someone doesn't understand something, they, they're going to have an adverse reaction to it. Of like, oh, they'll talk about failures. They'll talk about about how like, oh, what, it's, what's your business idea? What about the medical benefits? Like, how are you going to, what about a pension? And you have like this this pushback. Now, that wasn't necessarily the case in my family. I don't know if that was the case in your family. But I see that happening a lot to friends and family where they're struggling with this um, and not rewarding kids. Like for the fact that you turn your passion of, for video games into a business is just not a thing. I mean, it is now, but not just 10, 15 years ago. I was like, you're wasting your life away was typically what people would tell me if I'm playing Halo or something like that. And, so it, and it, my parents had no freaking idea what I was doing. And they thought that I was just wasting my whole life behind a computer screen. And granted, I get it. But at the same time, it's, it's hard. I think there's some differentiation. I mean, I look at people that are on TikTok and you know, wasting, wasting their lives away at TikTok, but then they're creating content. I'm like, I don't know if they're really wasting their lives, but you know, I, I, it's so hard because generational gaps also kind of give not enough clarity to that, you know? For sure. Um, For sure. So, so you, you, you had that pull where you had to get that nine to five and what was that nine to five in? Were you in, still a tech sector at that point? So, so yeah, I was a product manager. So I became a, a product manager, but get this, this company was a short-term rental company, Airbnb company. They did arbitrage. They took on leases and then they made more money on top of that. It was called Avanste. And um, I helped them scale from 200 to 1,000 plus units. 
Um, I was part of the team at least that did that. And um, that's really where I fell in love with hospitality. And I, it was, that was a weird time because I loved what I was doing, but I hated what I was doing. It was really weird. And I couldn't pinpoint it at the time why I felt this push and pull of like, dude, I am literally doing a job I love. Why do I hate it so much? And going back to it, honestly, was the structure. It was me asking questions or trying to understand higher level strategy, but not being part of that. It felt, I felt like my skills were being tampered. Like I was a fish trying to climb a freaking pole and it just made no sense. Like, why am I doing this? And so I realized that, I mean, they laid me off, thank God, because I probably wouldn't have left. I like to commit to something and stick with it. Same, um, and I was but, laid off during COVID, so blessing this God. Same thing, same thing happened to me. Oh, funny enough, I'm actually wearing this shirt. So the people that are vi- for visual, menu I don't know three. if it's visual. Menu, menu three, this is the company I started that uh, raised venture capital for and all that. So anyways, that's coincidence. But yeah, I'm going back to the story. Um, I think... Uh, they laid me off, which was great because I wouldn't have, I think that is like a pivotal moment for a lot of people. A lot of people won't change their life because change is hard. Um, but if forced factors change their lives, then it could change their lives. So I think like forever in a good way, right? So like, for example, COVID did that for a lot of people. I would argue that COVID was a fantastic place to kind of help people reset and um, kind of think about what am I doing with my life? And that's what what happened to me. Um, and so I decided to keep going down the path. I tried three different jobs and I got fired from three jobs in one year. <laughs> and so I realized, that. damn, like newsflash, uh, I started taking a lot of personality tasks. I was freaking out. Like, what's wrong with me? You know, like, am I, am I like a low IQ individual? I didn't know what was going on. I was like, am I just stupid? Like, am I not good personality? Am I not good a person? Like, I had all these questions. And so I just started going into all these personality types and that gave me a lot of clarity on who I am, which was really cool. Um, but I realized I'm, uh, basically every personality test told me that I should not be working for a company. Pretty much. <laughs> it's like, you're pretty much screwed. Uh, you gotta either start your own business or like, I don't know. There's only a few companies that you do well. And I think one of them was be a lawyer. I'm like, I'm not going back to school. So yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want to see myself with debt again. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so Anyways, so I decided to um, pursue uh, short-term rental investing, and um, I made that commitment, and I bought my first cabin uh, September of 2021, September 2021, bought my first cabin. Let, let, let's talk was, about that that first step to commit to a property, because it's no small undertaking. There's a pretty hefty investment usually. Did you have the capital from just working years as as uh, you know, your your nine to five job, and this was a leap of faith, or were you already doing arbitrage? And uh, for those who don't who are listening or aren't really familiar with arbitrage, it's essentially a master lease that you you do with a, uh, a owner saying like, "Hey, I'm going to commit five years to this. I'll give you X number of dollars per month." You could structure really any way. I mean, that's a whole podcast into itself. Um, and then you can make a, a percentage of the profits as the person who's running the Airbnb. Was that your first move? And that built up the capital for you to buy your own investment property? Um, because you mentioned you went to arbitrage, you were working for a company that was doing arbitrage. Is that your first step or was your first step buying the property? Yeah, good question. Uh, arbitrage, I tried it. Uh, I couldn't figure out the legalities of it and I kind of gave up. 
I called people, I called around a hundred people to try to manage their properties for them, um, as a co-host. And that was very, I didn't even know what I was doing at the time. I was just like, Hey man, no money down. I can manage somebody else's property and don't have to have experience. I mean, I have experience, so why not? And it didn't work. I tried a hundred people. Um, <laughs> you gave the college try. Yeah. I gave, I gave a very loose definition of trying, but, um, I thought the only way I was going to do it is, is I had to buy one. There's no other way to do it. And that, and, and I saw other, I think this is the thing is I started listening to right people. Um, when people say, don't listen to anybody, screw everybody, like, you know, two middle fingers, like, you know, screw everyone else. I think they're, you know, you should listen to some people. <laughs> I think you should be listening to right people. And so like people that are listening to this podcast, I think that is a fantastic way of listening to right people that have made success or at least strides in the, the area that you want to go in. I think that is a fantastic place. For me, I just went to a community where people were buying short-term rentals and they were buying them in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. They were living in California. They're buying in Tennessee and it was cheaper. And I thought to myself, if they can do it, why can't I? And the money that I had was all the money that I had from working a, um, working a, uh, the, the company when I, when I was 14, I still had money from that. I paid off my college. I did. No kidding. I still had some leftovers. I had like, I think 40, 40 grand or something like that left like 40,000 something, uh, which is nice. But at the same time, none of my jobs made me enough money to like, I didn't, I didn't keep a job long enough to make a significant amount. But anyways, did that and um, was able to get into a first studio cabin. Um, the funny thing is I, the accountability is huge, right? So I, ha I knew about short-term rentals since 2019, but I was buying my first one in 2021. I keep thinking to myself, what if I had the mentorship or like the, the, the right people to tell me how to do everything? Because I probably would have done it right. If I would have continued to call those owners and not give up after a hundred, maybe I could have snagged a deal or two that would have literally changed my life, but I didn't. And, you know, I go back to that and that's why these days I don't let opportunities slip. I take them on head first and that's exactly why I bought the property management company, but that's a whole nother story. So I'm sure we'll get, yeah, we'll get that. To that. So you, you purchased this first property. Is it? cash flowing day one did that, like how long did it take you to figure yeah. out the furniture how long did it take you to to make it so this is profitable how'd you build out your team like uh, this is this is kind of i'm sure a little harrowing for you since this is this is your first step and it's your money now not some yeah. you know another company's money at this point right so at this point i bought this cabin it's two thousand miles away it's a studio cabin i put 10 percent down so around 30 000, it was 306 306 thousand yep. dollars and I, I put 10% down vacation home loan. So I put $30,000 into, or as down payment. And then I had closing costs. Um, and then I had like maybe small little things that I flew out there. I put up like maybe small little bed sheets and things like that. I didn't really go above and beyond um, for furniture. I kept the existing furniture. It was an existing Airbnb. They made $33,000 a year. So I just by better marketing, better photos, and better uh, systems, I was able to almost double the revenue. I actually made $60,000 that first year. And so 
cash flow 20 i mean low interest rates so cash flow $25,000 net and it was i it was the best purchase i could have made honestly so that leap that leaps uh, leap started your career so to speak in being your own business owner at what point now you mentioned like you uh you tried to do the arbitrage before eventually you know the capital runs dry uh and then it's like there's only if you only had 40,000 to begin with you just use pretty much right. all of it to buy this one property how'd you get your second one and the, and everything henceforth yeah so at this point I, I didn't have any so i didn't have any money so i was done for i was making 25k net a year but that's not enough to really move the needle too much but i decided to quit my job because i hated i just didn't i was not a good employee so I quit my job. Most entrepreneurs aren't good employees. <laughs> so yeah, right. So I was making two two thousand net a month ish, one and a half to two k. So depending on the month, and I that was my living expense. So I was like, all right, our <laughs> living style, it. right? So I'm just gonna live below my means, way below, because I didn't really spend money on anything, and I'm just gonna be okay. And I went out to a party where I met a, this is what happens when you actually take action, you do stuff. Because I had one property under my belt, when I went up to parties or, you know, little get togethers, I was able to say, hey, I'm a short-term rental investor. You know, I have one, I was an escrow on my property. Yeah, you're not, and, a, uh, you're not uh, lying either. You are, even though it's just one condo. It's just one, but hey, I am. And so that kind of shifts the thinking. And plus it gives you a lot of author, a lot more authority when you're talking to people. So I met a guy who had flipped over a hundred houses. His name is Josh. He's my business partner to this day on the management side and otherwise. But when I met him, he wanted to get into Airbnbs. I had one Airbnb. He wanted to get into it or short-term rental. Um, and he wanted to get into it. And I was like, Hey man, I can teach you the way, uh, kind of like the Jedi, you know, um, but, uh, but then he told me he can teach, teach me the way of flipping and, uh, he has a lot of capital that he's built up over time. And he just wants cash flow. And I was like, let's do it. So we partnered up and we did um, five deals in uh, around six to nine months. So we did five deals together or four, four deals. I had five total. So four deals we did together. Well, is this all the Smoky Mountains at this time? Uh, this was in Joshua Tree now. So now that we transitioned to I, Joshua Tree because that's, it was pretty local to us. And he had a lot of people uh, in the desert that he knew as contractors that we could use in Joshua Tree. And so we kind of transitioned there. And that was the start of everything. Cause after that, we did the five properties. We did these, we bought these ugly homes that were torn down. We renovated them. And I did all of the I did all the work. And he put up the capital. And that's how we did all the deals. Um and um that got me cash flowing a lot faster, a lot better. And so put me in a better position. Um, and yeah. And then eventually what, what came about it is I decided I wanted to get into co-hosting. I was like, I need more cash flow Cause I have, I'm still paying him 10% on the money that he lends me. Right. So sure. yeah, it's, not like, it's not like he's doing it for free. Like there's not still like, he's, free. he's the bank, so to speak. He's the bank. So like any money that we don't cash out refi, uh, or yeah, from the refi, then whatever's left in there, like my half, I'm paying him 10%. And so, you know, it's not, it's not a total freebie, but you know, that's, it cut into my profits, but guess what? I was okay with that because I'm, I, but I was starting to run out of cash. I'm like to do more deals. I need cash. 
So I started trying to do co-hosting or managing other people's property. And I'm looking around to see who I should co-host for, what should I do? At this point, I had a, a company called STR Nation. So I was doing uh, a community and I did a conference in Vegas with 150 people. And so I did the whole thing. I had reputation in the industry at this point. And so, and a lot, and I was doing social media at the time too. So at this point, I, I realized I, I had something and that helped because a connection of a connection uh, reached out to me and said, you know what? I don't have one co-host client for you, but I have 14. She had a comp, somebody that was selling their co-hosting company or management company. And that was, and I didn't think twice. I just went into it and I just bought it. So now, I made a lot of mistakes. What, was this a seller's financing deal where they held the note or was it like, hey, we need all this money up front type of thing? Because I know a lot of people are interested in acquiring properties. Yes. So, so get this. So this is why property management companies, I realized that property management companies, instead of trying to build from scratch or, you know, try to sell people one by one, I rather just buy a bulk amount, get the domain authority or, or sorry, get the brand authority, get the, the systems and operations already in place, get at least some sense of people in place. And that kind of gives you kind of a, a framework or a foundation to build on. And then I just took my best business practices and, and kept going with it. But the way we structured the deal was we didn't know what we were doing. Honestly, we, I, I paid, I overpaid for it. Um, but I mean, I learned a lot, but I overpaid and it was, you know, we, we put, we put 50% down. So we put 50% down. I brought in Josh once again to put the 50% down. Um, and then I, uh, finance, uh, seller finance, seller carried the, the 50% on the back end for one year until we understand how much money the original profile made. So depending on how much money made, let's say they made 200,000, uh, then we make, then, then we give the full amount of the second half. If it made 150, then we give X amount. If it made a hundred thousand, we give X amount. So we kind of did like a breaking down tiered system that allowed us to basically see, um, you know, like if people, if everyone just leaves, we have at least some kind of, you know, uh, protection on the back end. So we were kind of smart there. But and I, I love um, that, man, because uh, yeah. to acquire a property or a business, I should say, for property management in particular, a lot of people, I think, have this question mark where they don't know how to structure a deal. And it's really any way you want to do it and the other side's willing to do, you can do anything. So you could just you can do what you just mentioned, where it's based on incentivization, where it's like, I make more money, you make more money. I make less money, you make more less money, because these are, are your accounts that I'm buying. Another way that this is, but in particular, what I did is something called a clawback. I'm like, hey, I'll give you X number of dollars, no problem. But if I lose these three houses and the, and the owners take it over, that's going to be X number of dollars taken off the money that I'm owed to you. And you could, it, so that's there's so did. many creative ways you can do uh, to, to make sure you're I didn't you're know it was called a clawback, but that's mm -hmm. what we, that's pretty much what we did. Kind of like a seller carry and then like a clawback. Um, so that's, I mean, that's interesting. Uh, I feel like everyone has a different way to structure. Like you said, my, sure. I'm in acquisition number two and acquisition number three. So all you learn every time, one, man, every time there's an oh, acquisition, you're you going to, you're like, oh, great. I got to apply this for next time. 100%. Yep. My third one, we're right now we're going through it. Um, we're just buying contracts. We don't want every they're they're leaving as a property management company. They've been in distress. 
And I didn't want to buy the whole management company, but what we did is I, I broke out a deal per contract and that's the way we're structuring it. So that's one way to do it as well. And then my, my other one that I'm uh, buying is, is a fully functional company doing really well. And that one we're, we're buying with the SBA loan. So we're putting 10% down and we're buying, you know, the full, whatever the amount is. And we're, we're netting a pretty strong amount of net cash flow pretty fast. And so, but then that has its own challenges, right? So it's like seller finance is a lot easier. You can close a lot quicker. This one, we're having to go through all of the legal so procedures. SBA loans aren't fun. I know that from firsthand. Yeah. It's a lot of documents, man. A lot of documents, yeah. So- all how are you finding think, these properties, yeah. by the way, or, or companies, I should say, that you're acquiring? Is this through relationships? Is it through like on, you know, the bizbuy.com? Like, yeah. how are you actually finding these companies that are distressed potentially to take over? It's just, I wish I could tell you there's like a secret sauce. It's just business um, and it's just relationships. So I'll, I'll go into a lunch meeting with somebody or I'll, whatever it is, like if anybody in any market wants to meet with me about what I've, like I just always give, give, give. And then sometimes things come back and I don't expect anything to come back, but times people, people see a potential and they'll, they'll talk to you. And so like this one, for instance, like the recent one that we had, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was somebody, it was a player in the area. Uh, they were selling their commercial building. And then we heard about the stress from the owner and um, without giving the name away, just um, out of respect, um, great, great, great guy. And just like everyone was going to leave and he was going to get nothing. So we put up a plan together where he could get something potentially. So it's not like just a loss. So like there's stuff like that where he was dissolving already. So um, there's- I think the key word here is, is relationships. And that relationships, is the most man. important thing is not burning bridges, it's a very small industry. People think it's a huge one. If you're in a certain sector, LA, Joshua Tree, there's probably only a couple of key players who are in that area. So your your reputation, your word is what's going to carry the value, not so much going online and just cold calling people to buy business. That obviously has its own merits and, and uh, needs, and that does work. But for instance, when I sold my business, I made one phone call to someone I built up a three-year relationship with who was my competitor. One phone call, Within 24 hours after sending over our, our, our books, I had an uh, all cash off because I had that great relationship and he knew who I was and he knew what kind of business I ran. So on the sell side or the buy side, it's so integral and in, in th that you maintain this um, and, and you're not just hiding underneath the radar or being so hyper competitive where you, where you try to undermine the other, uh, the other companies in your area and get that reputation. There's enough fish in the sea, so to speak. Oh, 100%. And and look, there's, it's, so here's, here's the crazy thing about just business acquisition. So number one, relationships are the easiest. I say easiest because trust is really like why people work with you. So if you're not doing that, the second best way is to either do one of two things. I always tell, this is what I tell people. So one of two things. One I really like to do is uh, LinkedIn, super slept on, LinkedIn sales navigator, and then finding owners that have vacation rental businesses. Like you can, you can tailor it down. And I like to look for the, there's different keywords and then just reaching out to them through LinkedIn, through email, getting their, all their information, and then just doing follow-up. 
and trying to at least see where they're at. Most times, like where you want to be with the business owner is you want to find somebody that wants to leave, either leave the industry for whatever reason, there's something going on. Like the first one, um, they had a baby. And so like the baby was taking up a lot of time and that's why they needed to leave. Uh, and they were working on hotel projects. So I'm like, respect, you know, like you, you don't want to be in this business. So I get it while you're selling. The other one was um, at the point of um, just in, in lawsuits and like didn't want to deal with um, any of this uh, of the industry anymore. They were just losing market share and they're like, this is not for me. But at the same time, they, they weren't doing things like all the way like that I would do it. So, you know, I definitely have some ideas of how I can maybe not, oh, not maybe not do better, but maybe in a different way that might make more money for the owner or whatever. Right. So there's always ways to add value, even for struggling businesses. In most cases, these owners, they're going to, they're going to be in pain from something. It could be a personal yes. pain, like a baby on the way or someone's sick in the family and they can't focus. Yeah. Or they're burned out from working 60 hours a week because they don't have the proper assistance in place. Right. Whatever it is, there's going to be a reason why they want to sell. I mean, yeah. they, they, it's not be, if someone's making great money and a personal life is great, chances are they're not going to sell <laughs> because they're yeah. enjoying the process or they have the right team. So not putting in so much time. You're going to look, you're going to be looking for owners essentially that, that just want out for whatever their reason is. But uh, also the the one that I'm in, the big one that I'm in right now, uh, that I'm buying, they just, I mean, they weren't in a rush to sell. They were just didn't want to sell to a corporation. They wanted to sell to a, uh, and this is important. They, they want to sell somebody that's going to keep the legacy going. And I think that's huge because when we built the relationship, we realized we had the same values. We operated the businesses the same way. And they saw for the first time, they're like, I would be willing to, to work with you. And that was just not something like that's because we're aligned. Like we were, we're like for the first time, they, they realized if we want the legacy to keep going, we don't want to screw our owners over like Vacasa does when they buy um, property management companies and they lose 50% of their business, right? So this is like the, the way to do it where it's much safer in that, in that retrospect. Um, and and I, there's a lot of business owners out there like with hotels, with campgrounds, with anything. There's so many opportunities to buy businesses of people that are not even distressed per se, but they're not in growth mode. They were just coasting. And I think that's that's another separate thing is I actually asked this other guy, I was like, how much would you sell your business for? And it was way above what I would pay for a business. But the difference there was he was in scale mode. So for him, he was like, well, I want the upward potential of this business. I see where I, this is going, right? I see where this is going. So like, I want that number up there. It's going to take me two years to get there. And like, for me, I can't pay that because then I'm banking off of future potential cash. It's just a ripoff from a price perspective. It's not yeah, a reasonable Call me in two years when you're at that number and then I can yeah. give you that number. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I can give you that number or, or just in general, like, you know, just don't do business with those people because they're not looking to sell, you know? So the people what's, that are best to sell. What's the most important evaluator when you're looking at a business to acquire? Is it current cash flow? Is it uh, the status of the homes? Meaning if they're like luxury listings, so to speak, uh, is it, like what, what for you, does, is there any criteria that they has to hit where you're like, this is exactly what I want to go for. And obviously you can put your own twist. You can put your own systems in place to, to really push the envelope. But what is your criteria on that side? And what advice can you give someone who wants to make yeah. a buy a product? 
Yeah, um, good question. So criteria definitely is, well, it's it's so broad, but financials, I always look at financials and I have to ask myself, if I take on this business, will I be able to replicate what the previous owner did T to T? So here's, here's the, this is where I messed up big time and I made, I made a hundred thousand dollar mistake. So I'm just going to give you guys the lesson. Um, where I made the mistake was I took their books as true, tried and true. And I didn't incorporate what it would cost for me to run this business because the owner was in a day to day. Um, they had, one of the owners was the accountant department. Uh, there's a lot of other things that I had to pay for, like, um, you know, like they weren't even counting on the books. Cause he was, he was just like, oh, that was an yeah, right. sure. and so like, they didn't have the expense for an, uh, uh, accountant. They didn't have the expense for payroll taxes. They didn't have the expense for a lot of these things. I'm like, crap, I have to take on these expenses. So you have to prorate that accordingly. So whatever they have on their books, you have to prorate it accordingly to what you would be running as a business and then take a multiple of that. Does that make sense? So like, I think that is the biggest consideration I, I know. And like in our industry, from what I've seen, it, it varies a lot, but I've seen uh, biz by sales actually tells you what multiples um, companies are trading at. There's actually a whole table for that. So property management companies are trading at about right now this year, uh, 2.6 multiple. For, which that's means because vacation rental management companies. Well, yes. property management companies. Well, so, no, so, so property management for, for long-term tenants, right? So that's like 12-month leases. Yes. I wish it was 2.6 or 2.7. It's usually lower than that uh, because the, the potential to make additional money isn't as high as Airbnb where you can kind of really control your day-to-day -day rates as opposed to being locked into a 12-month lease. Uh, True. But there's also a lot more stability there. 100%. Oh, yeah. So, so what, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that property management companies are some of the easiest to lend to. I didn't realize that. I was it's like, very what? true. It's amazing. And <laughs> the reason for that, surprisingly, um, I learned this just recently, is they're like property management companies, they're like, it's not reliant on one client. It's not like an accounting firm where it's like 80% of your business comes from 20% of the clients. No, it's like everybody contributes in some way. Uh, there are use cases where that's not the case, but most times you have so many clients and if like 20% drop, it's not going to kill the needle and that's protecting the downside for, for, um, for management. Um, but, but also some things you keep in mind, just backtracking a little bit for valuation purposes. Uh, what's more valuable is to have contracts in place. Like having a two-year contract is going to give you a lot more stability and a higher price point and valuation for your company than a, oh, you're co-hosting everything. When you're co-hosting really everything. You brought that up because I think a lot of property management, vacation managers in particular, want the easy out for the clients. They want to build that compelling offer, as Mr. Hamozi says, of like, no contracts, just give me a 30-day heads up, you're out. However, I advocate a little bit on the other side where you should have a contract. Not so much to scare the, uh, the, you know, your potential client, but it's assignable. Make it so you can sell this asset, so to speak, in that case. Otherwise, you might be stuck or an owner might say, hey, I agree to this. I'm out type of situation. Without that, the value isn't there technically because your clients could all leave the next day. Now, they won't. But for evaluation purposes, it's something really to consider in spite of having a really good offer on the front, front end. What's your opinion on that? I'm just curious. Do you value what kind of Hermosi says about having that unbeatable offer or do you make up for that in a different way? 
but with the different offers to your owners. It's it's a push and pull. I'll be I'll be honest. Currently, how we're running things, we do the the offer, the invaluable offer, where we can bring on a lot of clients really fast. But yep. also, we're in a place where we have to be competitive, especially to get some of the bigger dogs. We have to be competitive on our rates. You have to be competitive on a lot of things. So we're okay doing that. We're okay building the relationship that way. Um, but some of these legacy uh, companies have two-year contracts. I mean, it's it's a put like you said. I think Steve um, is it's it's there's pros and cons to both. You know, for sure. So I think once we build a reputation, I I want to tra- I think that's the next step for us is is definitely transitioning to more longer-term contracts. I think that's the way to go. Yeah, it, the way I, I I used to structure it was a 12 month minimum contract. And it was such an easy sell. I'm like, Hey, it takes a lot of work for me to onboard this, to really get it humming, to get your reviews, to really make it. So you actually see cash flow. I need at least 12 months to see this. And then after 12 months, give me 30 day notice. So at least there's a, a, a commitment that's there on the front end as a, as a continued partnership. Now, you can structure it any which way you want, but that's what worked for me personally. So we do similar. We do, sometimes we'll do a year. Sometimes we'll do six months and then we do month to month with a two month notice. That's what we do. So it's pretty similar to kind of what you were talking about. Um, so but, at this stage now, what, what yeah. how many homes are you are currently under your management? Like, like how many do you actually own and how many are you arbitraging now? Yeah, so um, I don't arbitrage anything, uh, but for ownership, I own uh, seven. Not all of them are live. Um, and then I manage around... Well, I 42 signed right now. So 42 signed, 33 live, I believe. So pretty solid. I'm going to um, give you a humble brag. If you don't mind sharing, <laughs> what would you say your gross revenue is? Not what you take home, but just like, what do you, what do you say across the board is? Um, well, the so we're scaling so fast. So for the 33 live that we had, in the last 30 days, last time I checked was 260,000 um, a month. That's amazing, so, man. It's a lot. <laughs> I can't even believe it. Patrick is 27, $220,000 a month. And obviously we know that's not in your pocket, but that's highly- 260, not, not to say that it's- Oh uh, yeah, yeah, throwing $40,000 <laughs> in there. You yeah. told me to humble brag, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very no. impressive, Patrick. That really thank is. You, thank you, so that, thank that's, you. And especially in the short short time span, I mean, 2021 is when you started. Well. I started the management company. We had, when we, when we bought, when I, beginning of this year, we're recording 2023, beginning of this year, January, um, I had six of my own. That's it. Mm-hmm. And now I in have- a year, you added this in many. a year, and I added that much. So that's, that in, in, well, March 1st is when we took over the management company, and we started with 14. We dropped four, and now we're 42. So- adding my own as well. So, you know, we over 20, over 25 contracts signed. And I always say it's not really the number of homes that you manage. It's more of the actual profitability. I mean, I know yeah. some people who manage five super hyper luxury oh, homes yeah. that are $3 million oh, yeah. each on property. Oh yeah. And they're making more than someone who's managing a hundred. So, oh yeah. So for you, is it more quality over quantity at this point, the stage in your career? Yeah, so I feel uh, I feel like we're getting to a point where we're probably going to purge some the bad uh, owners. And like it's <laughs> it's just bad owners. Uh, yeah, honestly, yeah. I don't even care about the properties as much as the owners. The pro- if it's a bad if it's like an okay property, I'll take it on. I'll continue doing whatever I can for the owner if they're nice. 
but there's there's an asshole tax. I'm sorry, guys. There's an <laughs> asshole tax. I don't want to deal with buttheads. And quite frankly, I'm willing to say no. And um, and so to answer your question, most of them are th- there's there's some that are ultra luxury. I say ultra, I say like pretty like whatever for our area. And then uh, there's some that are luxury esque, and then there's a lot that are in the middle. Um, but when I say in the middle, I'm not saying like they're ugly. Like these are nice homes. Like we don't take on anything that doesn't make us at least a thousand dollars a month. So if it doesn't make us a thousand dollars a month, we don't take it. So that's how we come up with our fee as well. So like let's say it's like if somebody wants twenty percent, but they don't, they only bring in seven hundred dollars a month, we're not going to take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Does that work so, your time or energy at that point? Yeah. So so you mentioned before we I hit record here that you have a number of uh, W two employees. What does your team look like these days? Like, what does it take to run this uh, this amount of homes, the forty two homes that you have? Yeah, so, so forty two homes. Uh, we have we've definitely overstaffed in the sense that we're building for scale. I, I believe that a lot of times you have to build foundation before you really need it, and so we really don't need the foundation. But I hired a COO or VP of Ops or whatever you want to call it, my integrator. Uh, she's incredible. She builds out all the systems across the company, all of the weak points that we have. She's building like a guest ticketing system right now. That's going to be very similar to how, uh, customer success teams work across the board in the country, things like that, that we're really working on. Uh, it's funny cause tomorrow I'm actually going to Joshua tree for a three day retreat also awesome. to literally spend time with the leadership team to, put together a plan for 2024 and like what we want to build. And like, we're being very intentional, not because like we're this crazy big company is because we want to become that crazy big company. And so to be that way, you need to think like they do. You have to build systems that way. So that's why we're being very intentional. So that's a long winded answer, but I have two area managers on top of that for the area. Um, I have uh, five virtual assistants and they're incredible. Um, they are my lifeblood. I love them. And then I have an in-house accountant also from the Philippines. Love her. She's incredible. She makes it so much easier to do invoicing and all that. Um, and then I, and then we have, um, we have a handyman in-house and then we have around 20 cleaners. So, and that's, that's an, it's like cleaners in-house as well. Um, 1099s, but, um, they, they decide if they want to work with us or not, but sure. they're pretty much, they do a lot of business with us. So that's, that's fantastic, Patrick. And, and it's, you know, it's when you mentioned that you're going into this three day retreat to set goals, so many business owners don't do that where they're not conveying the mission statement to their teammates. And it's more of just that they get caught in the minutia of the day to day. So the fact that you're doing that speaks volumes of your level of an entrepreneur. Uh, now you mentioned future plans, right? What is your scalability in your head? Do you want to get to a certain number and like, I'm good. And then you want to do something that's maybe a little bit different or off, or off the cuff. Like what is, what is the long-term plans out for? And I should mention your, the company is called stays you like just in stays case. You like. you're right. Um, so long-term goal. I mean, right now, when we take over the, this new company, these next two companies, we're probably going to be close to 100 units. So by March, getting the, these all onboarded. <laughs> I'm hoping. I know we'll hit at least 80, 
but uh, I want to get to 100. So my goal is to get 100 by March 1st, 2024. So that'll be one year from when I started and had um, six of my own to literally 100 in one year. That that would be awesome for like, just for numbers. It'd be really cool to have it. But I'm not stressed about it uh, because it's numbers are numbers. Uh, we're going to eventually purge some anyways. So, uh, but, but the idea here is that we're definitely thinking about growth. I think a lot of behind the scenes is happening right now, which is really good. I'm really happy about it. Uh, and, um, the main, the main goal, main, main goal would be uh $10 million, uh, exit. And so when you do the math, let's say for easy numbers, three X multiple, I'm going to have to be at the $3.3 million net. And so that's the question that we're going to figure out in this, this strategy session in the next couple of days is what are we, what are our roadblocks, where we have to go, what are the, what are the things we should focus on in Q, Q1 2024, that kind of thing. So that's the goal. That's the end goal is $10 million exit. And I'm hopeful to be like Steve Class. That's the goal. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah. So... In order to get there, are you primarily looking for just acquisition after acquisition, or do you also have your own scale plan of actually getting um, property owners to come to you and saying, "Hey, here's the keys to my here's the keys to the castle"? Are you doing both? Oh, are yeah. you doing? We're doing both. So, so sometimes what happens when we push efforts because we do a lot of marketing, we don't we don't do outreach, which is something that we're probably going to explore. But we do a lot of marketing. We do really well. We haven't been focusing on getting clients. That's the crazy thing. Clients come to us. So we've built out this infrastructure, which you probably talk about a lot, I'm assuming, but we built out this infrastructure where we become, we're the experts in our space. I have my own podcast. I have a social media presence. I have all this stuff. People come to me and they ask, hey, I really want you to manage my problem. And so there the sale just becomes, can we, you know, or if somebody has any interest and they come to me from referral, so now I, those are a lot easier than having to go convince somebody to leave somebody else or try to do anything that's a little bit. Sales is hard when you don't have, well, not hard. I, I'm not going to say it's hard, but it's, it's more difficult than marketing where the people already trust you and know you and like you. Right. The um, no like and trust factor. That, that's yeah. why I would like to espouse that where your marketing is so good that it's not a sales call you're taking. It's more of like mm -hmm. a verification of your services before they sign a contract. Exactly. They just want to see the contract. They want to see, they want to verify that we're the numbers. Like what are you, yeah. what, are, what, are you, what are you promising me? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to get that to that $10 million number, you're going to have some work to do, but the fact that you scale this level, I'm sure that there's startup bumps, right? Always is either operationally and in the back end fulfillment, but you live in, you live and learn and you grow. And I really love that you hired a COO already. Um, because a lot of people will hire from the bottom down. They'll start with like the boots on the ground employees and then scale up. If you don't hire an A player who is your equal partner on the skills you lack, there's only so far the company's going to go because you're the smartest one in the room. You have to have someone like your like uh, you mentioned this lady who's your COO who has a completely different mindset, doesn't want to be in front of the camera, and is like, I have these great ideas that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your ideas, I'm going to implement them all the way down the chain. And that's what your recipe of success are. Steve, she's incredible and she's everything that I'm not and I'm everything that she's not and, mm -hmm. and my business partner as well. Me, me and my business partner are pretty similar in a lot of ways. He's better in some things than me and we, and I'm better than him in some ways and we just kind of collaborate. But, um, but this COO is just next level. Like you said, definitely uh, recommend hiring A players. 
the top actually that's a good way of putting it top bottom hiring i like that because people are like well that's too expensive and and trust me yes i know i'm paying her she probably gets paid more than me but not even probably she does and but i'm okay with that you know because i know that with her like the company is going to be incredible and it's already has been so uh i'm okay if you want to get to the next level you have to have people who are willing to take you there uh, not you yeah. take them there for them to take you there because you surround yourself by by the best of the best, so to speak. Hundred percent. So, uh, Patrick, what would you? What advice would you give to someone who wants to start a property management business? You started off with a condo in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, do you still have that one, by the way, or have you sold it? I sold it. It was a cat. It was a cabin, and I sold it for a profit of a hundred and se- well, I took one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars of cash out. Sure, you're fine. That was a great property that I was able to invest into my area in Joshua Tree. So, perfect. Have- so, well, yeah. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out? Maybe they only have ten thousand dollars to their name, and it's and that they want this to be like their career. Yeah, ten thousand dollars to your name. Uh, ten thousand dollars can take you very far when you spend it on marketing dollars. Uh, I would do that. I would spend it on either self improvement on knowledge that you can you can learn from or on taking a bet like for instance uh getting systems for like crm or like building some like investing in something that's going to get you to the next goal to allow you to get like clients for instance like i would invest into that like marketing for instance um and then and learning the skill sets to grow and scale because i think the highest roi is there and then trying to either a get i I, okay backtrack best piece of advice is is focus on finding the deal because the money will come the money will always come if somebody gave you a 20,000 if i told you you get steep $40,000 for a ferrari would you buy it for me yes yeah you would buy it's it. a great deal <laughs> you know it's a great deal exactly even though you don't need it people people from a consumer mindset will say well that's a horrible deal i wouldn't want to buy that why well, do ferraris go for 100,000 so it's I like, know that or, yeah i know yeah. that i can sell for 100,000 and do you think you can raise the money 40,000 to make a quick flip and and make 60k yes and so i think looking at the the value and 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 understanding that you have to get to the convince people to to work with them on either arbitrage or with managing their properties if you can do that then you win. So that's what I would focus on. And then we have a closing tradition here on the podcast where I ask the same question. And it's in the same vein of what I just asked before, but I want you to rewind the clock to you personally, to a younger Patrick who is 20, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old and isn't the confident uh, man we see in front of us today. What advice would you give to your younger self based on what you've learned in the, in the past five years? Okay, so Steve, you, you you've been this you you've done school right you've graduated college did you graduate got my college? undergrad yes sir waste of uh, money but that's another side <laughs> <laughs> i did the same thing so you graduated college so you know this firsthand when you go to school people teach you that you should always do your own work you should um you should never copy you should never steal and uh you just produce the best thing you can and find the answers and there's only one right answer in real world there's that's not how it works in real world there's multiple answers uh there's multiple paths and there you should absolutely steal uh ideas <laughs> not not people's yeah. properties yeah. but no. ideas steal flat screen steal TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i gotta clarify that steal ideas and copy ideas that's what i would say i think the and 
And that's like one of the biggest regrets I have is I wish that I copied somebody sooner. All right. Copy and then do better. That's why I always like to add better. Copy and innovate. Yep. So Copy and innovate. Always, man. Always. Patrick, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Um, if someone wants to stay at some of these amazing properties in Joshua Tree, where can they find out more uh, about it? And where can they find you on social media? Yeah, you can add me on social media. Patrick, P-A-T-R-Y-K underscore S-W-I-E-T-E-K. If you want to put in the show notes, Steve, that's up to you. But oh, um, <laughs> we'd love, we'd love to, I'd love to connect and help answer any questions you may have. Yeah. Awesome. If someone is actually looking to sell a business that happens to be in Joshua Tree, please, please hit up Mr. Patrick. He's <laughs> I, happy to entertain your offer and see how to make it. It could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be Joshua Tree. Oh, there you go. There you go. You're expanding your horizons. My friend. <laughs> there you go. Good stuff. All right. Thanks again, my friend. Um, hopefully, I'll get to meet you in person soon. Good stuff. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for tuning into Service Business Success with Class. Are you craving more strategies to supercharge your business growth? You can connect with me at successwithclass.com or on my Instagram at Stevie Class. And remember, when you hit subscribe, it's a win-win. You'll get your hands on all the latest tips and you'll be supporting the show too. Thanks again for joining. Until next time.